Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Hi and welcome to Software Tech Talks. Today I'm delighted to welcome onto the show Jake and Ariana. Can I ask you both to introduce yourselves, tell us what you do at Software and maybe an interesting fact about yourselves? So my name is Ariana. I'm a UX designer at Softwire. I've been at the company for about five months. Interesting fact about myself, I'm originally from the Philippines, but I moved to Sweden when I was very young and I was raised there, but I've lived in the UK for most of my adult life. <laughs> so so you're a nice mix of different cultures. Yes, I try to be at least. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm Jake. I'm also a UX designer at Softwire. I've been with the company for about just, well, January since January last year. I'm from Australia. I can't really think of anything that's super interesting about myself. I'm learning French at the moment, so that's kind of interesting. And I can do a Rubik's Cube in less than 90 seconds, so that's kind of interesting as well. Oh, that's pretty good. That's really cool. Did you have to do a lot of practicing to get that good? Yes, essentially. It's just, it's like, it's like a, it's, it's an algorithmic kind of sequence that you need that you have to learn to, to do it the way that I do it. But the really smart people in software can do it in less than 20, 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And I can't do it that quickly. So Wow. Well, today we're going to be talking about design skills and techniques, why they're important and how developers can best work with designers. Susan Kerr, who designed the icons for the first Apple Mac, said... Good design is not about what medium you're working in. It's about thinking hard about what you want to do and what you have to work with before you start. So to kick us off, do you both agree with that statement by Susan? Yes. I say it's it's a very good description, but I also think that good design is very, very difficult to define. So it's one of those things where any kind of punchy line about it while I think that they can be useful and also very inspirational. I don't think they're necessarily always the most sort of descriptive. Mm. Well, in my experience, I found that that design, you know, it has an underlying kind of ethos of what it is, like, you know, as in design can't be something without solving a problem, for example, or, or the actual act of creating something like things like that. So it has, it has things that has values that support what design is, but I would say that the exact definition of design varies from, can vary from person to person. Okay, good. It sounds like this is a really interesting topic to discuss. So maybe we can start with what design is not. So what what are the kind of common misconceptions out there? Well, I think a common one, especially in tech and IT, is one of, oh, they just make pretty pictures, which is not, which is obviously not true. Design, I guess, in 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 general, is a um, something that people do to to solve a problem. So, a designer, uh, an architect, for example, there'd be an underlying reason why that person has crafted their design in a certain way. And uh, for us as UX designers, you know, we start with a with a, with a problem. I guess, like I guess, like um, Susan we start with the problem and we try to solve that. So it's not about making things look pretty. It's not just about making things look pretty. It's not just about making things look good. They have to work well as well. And um, the old adage of form will always follow function is kind of something that is very true in this case. Like It's not useful to have a, a three-legged chair that falls over and looks good as opposed to one that actually works properly. 
Yeah, I definitely think that the idea that design is something that is wholly visual and is only about that, like the surface level of it, is very persistent. Like even amongst some designers to a certain degree, that can sometimes slip in. I think another one is the fact that there's probably a misconception about the fact that design happens primarily in like the design program that any one designer would choose to use. So like Sketch or Figma or any sort of like software that that is the skill set that a designer primarily has. Whereas I'd say that most of the work in design happens before you're even looking at a screen, you know? Right. So I think that that's also a fairly common misconception. There's a lot of thought involved in reaching a conclusion to thinking about what the right thing is to actually craft that's going to solve the problem that you've figured out. For example, like you've figured out like the problem to taxis might be Uber, but there's a whole there's a whole process there in figuring out what the actual problem was before they actually put any, you know, pixels on screens and actually started doing stuff. So this is very helpful because I think this is definitely allowing me to get this kind of feel for this shape of what design is. Do we have a definition of, of what design is or should we should we move on? There was the Wikipedia one that I pulled out and I put into a lunch and learn. Now, I can't really remember what it is. And that kind of shows how how nonspecific and nondescript it was. I think it was like something like. Yeah, something about the process of doing something to do something. Like it had a lot of big words in it that makes very little sense once you read it. Yeah, there are a few quotes by famous people like Steve Jobs. Design is not just about how it looks, it's about how it works. So things like that often sum up design quite well, but no kind of catch-all thing that I can think of. Well, let's look at a practical sense then. So could I ask you both to give me your examples, your favourite examples of of good design that that you know of? So for like a specific feature, one of the things that comes to mind for me is in Spotify, there are a lot of indicators that use both colour but also shape to show the state of something. And that's basically to make it more accessible. So even if you can't see like the color change in something uh, to indicate that that's the thing that's playing or that that's the thing that's selected, it'll usually also have some other form of indicator. And I think things like that are really a a good example of like little things that still make like take products up a notch because it makes them easier to use, even if it's something that the users probably won't pay attention to at all. Right. Yes. So you've got this concept of like good design is invisible. If it's working well, you don't even notice that it's that it's doing mm, the job. Exactly. For me, I'm kind of along the same vein as that. And I think City Mapper is something that we all use quite a lot. And I by no means think it's perfect, but it does. It is kind of a recipe of a lot of really well done features, which I think makes the product itself quite strong. So there's things that are very specific, you know, when you're on your public transit journey that are solved by City Mapper. It was something that I would call a delighter feature, something that really adds a cherry on top of it. Oh, that's really useful that that tells me that information because that's really relevant to me in, in a really specific context. And, and I guess an example of that would be, so when you're on your tube, if you do like a, let's say, a regular journey that I do is from Kentish Town, which is where our offices are, to Baker Street, which is where I study French. So I put that, you know, 
journey into the city mapper nearly every time I do that journey. And it, it tells me where on the tube that I should get on. It tells me like the distance between between changes. And it also gives me like a number of options for like how to get there. Like it, it might say like, oh, go down to Euston and then get the Euston to, to Oxford Circus and then change at Oxford Circus and do that. Or just go down to King's Cross and then you can change at King's Cross and get. So it, it has a whole bunch of little features that are very specific. And it's tied in really well with with TFL's data, which makes it more relevant for like everything that's going on at the moment. So it's very contextually useful for everybody that's using it. And I guess when I say that, I mean, you know, something can be useful in one context and not useful in another context. And somebody that did a talk a couple of years ago was talking about how his first child was, you know, having this really fun time in this box and it was just a box and it was like the most amazing thing ever. And then when he had his second child, he recreated the same environment and the child was like, I have no idea what's going on. Like, why are you putting me in this box? So like, it's heavily dependent on the context of the user for like a product to be successful. And that's something that CityMapper does really well. Mm, Fantastic. So a new term that I've been hearing recently is human-centered design. So what does that term mean? It's kind of what it says on the tin. I don't mean to sound glib about that, but it's it's one of those things <laughs> where it's like it's it's designed for people, but I think that the the difficulty with practicing human-centered design isn't so much in knowing what it is, but it's in knowing how to do it. Okay, and so if we're, t- we're talking about designing for humans, but what are the ways in which people were designing then that the, the term human-centred design came about to address? My thinking on human-centred design is it's, 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 a, it's almost like a rebranding of what design actually is. Because I feel like design, you know, over the years, it's, it's not changed what it, what it is, but the perception has changed. So, for example, like people might hear design and they might think like, oh, it's something that, you know, people do for themselves. It's like a, it's an indulgence. It's like, oh, this thing looks pretty, like this is my creation. When in fact, if you break it down, what design actually is, is creating something that has a purpose. And nearly all of the time, if it has a purpose, it's designed to be used by a person. So it's really just like a, a renaming of what, I guess, design originally was. I guess in designing for people but designing for humans the the main thing that I think is necessary you know to succeed in this field is um like just a, a empathy every UX designer every human-centered designer will say that you need to be able to empathize with a problem you need to be able, able to empathize with a user like if there's a, a city mapper is another good example like if for example they don't do a very good job of, about making their product accessible for people that can't see and have to use screen readers so empathizing with that problem is kind of key to solving it and perhaps it's a different type of thinking as well it's not like a logical mathematical type thinking of saying well this user does this and then or you know 60% of users do this it's actually much more about putting yourself in someone's shoes yeah definitely like Jake said it is kind of what design is in general but I've always liked to use the word holistic So a designer will look at a problem very holistically. If you think about what a user's experience of a product is, it isn't sort of, if we're talking about a digital product, it isn't just what they see on the screen. How they experience that product is going to depend on loads of things, including like the interface itself, their internet speed, the context that they're in. Are they 
using the product on the bus? Are they using it at home? What time of day is it? What time of year is it? What have they experienced before in their lives? What is their cultural context? Like there are so many factors. Basically, everything that a human being has ever seen, done, or experienced is going to affect how they approach the thing that you're designing. Mm. And while we can't predict all of that, designers can use certain skill sets like empathy, like Jake said, to at least preempt a lot of it and and design to accommodate for those people. Mm. And you can lean on a lot of quantitative data because I guess in terms of feedback and data that you get back from from products there is kind of two sides of the coin there's the quantitative side which is like oh how many users converted at this point and there's the qualitative side which is how does the user feel at this moment in time and obviously one is a lot easier to define than the other and the quantitative side you can lean on that data but as Ariana said like you know each experience is going to be unique and that's not something that you can mathematically calculate or peg down to a t right so this this whole field of design seems pretty large <laughs> now we started talking about it. So how does that break down and what kind of different design roles are there? What kind of different designers are there? In our Lunch and Learn, Jake very eloquently talked about how that's also equally difficult to define. But if you <laughs> really want to sort of try to put some kind of labels on it, you can sort of break a lot of design roles down into the different sort of phases of the design process, the the most common one. If you think about the sort of beginning of design being a a phase of understanding, and then the next one being a a phase of sort of conceptualizing and ideating, and then the third one being a phase of of executing and delivering, then there are a lot of design roles that sort of occupy one or two of these spaces, roughly speaking. People think about this particular thing in a lot of different ways, as Ariana said. There is a definite, in terms of human-centered design, there is a there is a spectrum that Ariana kind of laid out there. Specifically, sort of on the discovery side of things, you've got quite niche roles like like user researcher, for example, and there might even be sub-roles of that. For example, like if an organization like Google is really big, they might be able to afford to be really specific in in certain areas so they might have certain people that do those jobs but I guess as as an organization is smaller they don't have the opportunity to be so specific so we've got user researchers that are a part of our team but we've also got uh, UI designers which is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of delivery now those are just two roles two kind of more specific roles at each end of the spectrum Ariana and I are UX designers And if you kind of drew a line across those three areas, that line is a line that covers two or, you know, two and a half of those areas. And that moves from person to person. So people have experiences and and strengths in certain areas. And there's a whole bunch of other roles like, uh, like service design, product design, that all kind of are in the similar sort of vein. And it's a bit of a case of, okay, well, you do this stuff. What are we going to call you? It's less about the role type and it's more about what you do. So Ariana and my skills, you know, may be fairly similar and maybe that's why we have the same job title, but it's really just a job title. It's when you break it down to like, who's going to be right for this project? My head of department might be like, oh, well, Jake has skills in this area. Let's choose him. Or Ariana has skills in this area. Let's choose him. The role name is almost ceremonial to a certain extent. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, fantastic. So we also talked earlier about how being a designer and the process of design is not 
the skills that you have in terms of using tools. However, perhaps you could just run us through some of the common tools that designers use in order to help us, you know, solve problems in this way. I think that the the, the best thing to take away from, from something like that is that as much as we definitely want to be good at using sort of the design programs, things that like some of the things that I mentioned earlier, a lot of the sort of tools we use are kind of pen and paper, post-its, word processors, like there's a lot of other work to go along with what I said earlier about how a lot of the work happens before you're even really looking at the screen itself. We have tools that reflect that as well. We have like brainstorming things or ways that we draw up flows. One of my favorite tools is Whimsical, which is a very good sort of flow mapping tool. Okay, so you're, you're starting to kind of like shape out what the user is going to be doing. And there are a whole bunch of models as well, not necessarily specific software or specific tools, but especially when we're trying to figure out the problem, we're trying to use, you know, our critical thinking skills to dive a little bit deeper into what the problem is and how we think we're going to solve it. We maybe don't use software specifically, but we use models like design thinking and the double diamond method and user journeys. And there's this tool called Crazy Eights, which is a sketching tool, like things like this that people have tried and came up with as kind of models and tools to generate ideas we use to generate our thinking before we've even pushed any pixels around. So that's maybe not a specific software, not a specific tool, but it is a model, I guess, quote unquote, that we use to to generate ideas and thinking. Definitely. There are so many good sort of frameworks. Jake mentioned a couple of that. I think I've used all of those at some point and it kind of expands on and on. Like I feel one of the things that's quite interesting and also exciting about being in design is that these things are constantly developing because it's such a sort of rapidly developing field and and people are have there's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of sort of ideation that's happening around the concept of design itself so if you just go on some place like medium you'll almost always find some person who's suggesting oh here's here's a model that you can use or this is what i personally use when i'm trying to solve x and there's there's a lot of sort of sharing within the design community trying to to find sort of the right tool for the right problem. And it's not necessarily always the same one. Wow. So it's a lot more about sharing and learning then rather than kind of formal design training. You kind of imagine designers going to, you know, school a bit like architect school and learning how to do sketches and so on. Mm. It's actually much more about focusing on solving the problem and then finding new ways and working with the community to, to learn the new types of thinking that are going on. Yeah. I mean, just on that point about like designers going to, to school to learn about design, I wouldn't be willing to to write off anyone that hasn't had any formal training as not being a designer because they definitely don't necessarily have to have any sort of formal training. But the way that a lot of us have actually become human-centered designs is through another form of training that has kind of it's evolved into this into this field so like I used to be a graphic designer I've known people that used to be industrial designers and architects and anthropologists and they all kind of have their own set of skills that you learn when you study that thing I'm not debunking the idea of of not going to to uni to study design specifically but a lot of us have come through different fields into this field I mean I, I would just like to add to that because I completely agree with it that I also think that that's also a 
kind of part of what makes design good is people coming in from different fields and having different perspectives because like we've mentioned it's about empathy and the more different perspectives you can put in a room the more holistic your view of the problem is going to be so like even thinking about other fields so at university I studied psychology and after that I was in marketing and that's sort of how I went into design and that's kind of a slightly different perspective than somebody who would have been a graphic designer or someone who's come into it from the tech side of things and been an engineer first and then become a designer. Mm. So it's all about sort of finding uh, complementing skill sets. Yeah. And you don't have to necessarily learn a specific things, but I guess it's like shaping yourself as a human. The reason why a lot of us, are, you know, we're, we're good at this and the reason why we do this is because we, we've had the experience that have, that have made us good at this. So, you know, somebody that's really early in their career, like 19 or 20 years old, being like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do design, but I've had no formal training. It's like, yeah, that may be true, but you have to have some sort of experience that's going to give you, you know, as we put at Software, skin in the game to, to prepare you for making the right decisions and designing products in the right way and doing the right type of thinking and that kind of thing. Right, this is fascinating. Just finally, as designers, how do you work with engineers and how can, conversely, engineers best work with designers? So I think that really mainly boils down to collaboration and open communication. So design is sort of a team sport. Uh, nobody really designs alone. And while someone who is a, a formally a designer like Jake or myself and has that role we're not the only people who do design in a project because pretty much anybody who makes any decision about what we're making is making a design decision for a human being. So I think it's it's a lot about work when working with engineers, it's a lot about support and it's a lot about education and being informative, being able to not just make decisions for the project, but help other people make them. And that comes from like having conversations. So on a, a practical level, it's it's things like talking to engineers early on and continuing to keep those channels of communication open sort of well into the dev of the project and then being able to question each other or push back on certain decisions. Like f as a designer, I love it when engineers ask me why I did something or you know want to hear me explain my decision making because if I explain that to them and then they say cool how about we do it like this instead and I think that that idea is better for x amount of reasons like that is for me the ideal ideal way of working mm. on a more like pragmatic level on the back of that having worked quite a bit in the delivery space in my career the reason why a lot of the reasons why in product dev we have tickets is because that is kind of the holy grail of the feature that you're trying to to build so if you've got as a user i want to be able to record my podcast over the internet so that i don't have to leave the house because coronavirus is going on at the moment <laughs> like imagine that's the user story right if that concept has been agreed on by everyone, then you've all got a shared goal of what to build. So the how you get there is secondary to that. And that will be the discussion that I'll often have with developers and be like, oh, well, I've decided that it's it's a good idea to go about things in um, in this way. But the engineer will say, well, we can't do that because there's all of these technical limitations or we can do that, but it's going to take a lot longer. And then it's about weighing up all of that 
rather than sacrificing your shared goal, if that makes sense. So you both have, like, I guess you and engineer both have a shared goal of like, you know, what is the success of this user story and how do we achieve it? Then on both sides of the coin, you know, on the, on the engineer side and on the designer side, it's about how do we reach that together? So there really shouldn't be any pride in it. There is because, you know, we're human. There really shouldn't be any pride in it. Or like, I think this is better because I know the best or whatever the case may be. It should be like, okay, well, these are your reasons. These are my reasons. How can we get to that shared goal together? So that's kind of more of a specific example. But so many cases I've seen, unfortunately, designers have been like, well, it has to be that way because I said so. And engineers will be like, oh, well, we can't do that because there's all of these technical limitations. When in the first instance, it might be that's not a good enough reason why you don't want to why you don't want to hear somebody else. And in the second case, it's not a good enough reason because you haven't thoroughly investigated the viability of that of that solution. So it's it's kind of part and parcel. And I think if you have that shared goal of how to reach a success for a specific ticket, you know, if you agree on that, then it doesn't matter so much how you go about doing it. Yeah. So it's about working together and working collaboratively and communicating mm-hmm. to get to the, the, like you say, the shared outcome that you're all are trying yeah. to achieve the same thing. I have really enjoyed discussing this topic. I don't think I've heard the word empathy come up so much in a podcast before, which is brilliant because so many people think of technology as being kind of cold and inhuman, whereas actually, as you've both been saying, the the best way to to build and develop technology is absolutely putting people at the centre of it. So thank you so much, Jake and Ariana, and join us next time on Software Tech Talks.